Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It was, ladies and gentlemen, no less than we expected. It was a bravura performance of epic proportions and it went on for hours and hours and hours and hours. And if you didn't know that Dominic Cummings was a borderline obsessive with a side order of paranoia, you know it now, for sure. Over seven hours of twisting, turning and downright whining from the man once said to be the real power behind the throne, occupied by Boris Johnson in number 10 Downing Street. But this morning, instead of surveying the burned out rubble of an administration laid to waste by its former architect, the man uh, who wanted to quote um, the, uh, of course, a science fiction movie uh, that he so loved when he talked about people coming in and warning uh, that everything was going horribly wrong. Uh, we're all rather hung over with the disappointment of realising that it wasn't much more than the longest resignation letter in history. Cummings had plenty to say, but so much of it was bitter and twisted vitriol that the important stuff got lost in the crossfire. If only he concentrated on the fact that Carrie Simons was acting illegally by appointing her friends and getting the Prime Minister to fire her enemies, and if he had simply stuck to his narrative that Matt Hancock had deliberately misled everyone and lied to Cabinet, that would have stuck too. But instead, we are left with the equivalent of a WikiLeaks dump of thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. Way too much for anyone really to take in. We'll get the views of Mail on Sunday columnist Dan Hodges this morning, ahead of Matt Hancock's own defence speech in the House of Commons, which we expect to happen around about 10.30 this morning. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we're joined by author and lawyer Helen Dale, with her take on why the public now expect their politicians to be untrustworthy at best, and dishonest at worst, and why the Dom simply hasn't connected with anyone outside the Westminster bubble. Plus, we've got LaDonna Harvey from the US of A on the Biden-Putin summit, and what it means for Europe and we'll be asking Ben Habib if the latest Home Office manoeuvre to outlaw illegal migrants will actually work. More coming on that a bit later on. 0344 499 1000. It's Thursday, of course, so Helena Nicklin joins us with another fine selection of wines for us to taste on what looks to be the start of a very beautiful weekend. If Cummings has done nothing else, at least he's turned the weather around and it looks rather nice out there. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course... Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, let us just remind ourselves, before we speak to Dan Hodges to get his take on everything that went on yesterday, uh, let's just remind ourselves of some of the key points made by Dominic Cummings yesterday in his incredibly long and incredibly intense appearance before a parliamentary committee. 
Here he gives insight into the government's preparedness for a pandemic. She says, I've just been talking to the official, Mark Sweeney, who is in charge of coordinating with the Department for Health. He said, quote, I've been told for years that there is a whole plan for this. There is no plan. We're in huge trouble. Tala Makamura said, I've come through here to the Prime Minister's office to tell you all, quote, I think we are absolutely f***. Well, uh, he certainly is, that's for sure. Uh, what about this? Speaking about political system on Bojo and Corbyn. There's a very profound question about the nature of our political system that means that we got at the last election a choice between Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson. I think any system which ends up giving a choice between two people like that, I don't exclude myself from this. In any sensible, rational government, it is completely crazy that I should have been in such a senior position, in my personal opinion. Uh, I think that's Dominic Cummings attempting to show some kind of level of humility so that people will take him a bit more seriously. I'm not buying it, though. Let's talk to Dan Hodges, Man on Sunday commentator, who I think got it absolutely spot on yesterday uh, when he said it may well be damaging to Matt Hancock. It may well be damaging to Boris Johnson. But no way on earth is Dominic Cummings coming back from this. Dan, a very good morning to you. Morning to you. So, um, quite an interesting day, I suppose you might say, one way or another, but an incredible performance from a man who clearly thinks he's far more important than he really is, um, while trying at the same time to kind of convince everyone that he's actually quite humble. It was it was kind of confusing at times, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with your analysis there. I mean, it was quite clear that the humility that Dom Cummings was showing at the beginning was entirely cosmetic because as the evidence developed um, he then attempted to paint a picture in which everybody got everything disastrously wrong because they were either maligned or incompetent and the only person who got anything right was either either him or his own friends and and allies and you know, I mean, as you said, it was it was you know it was explosive testimony, it was riveting testimony. But I think the f- the fundamental fact I think that's been slightly been missed is, you know, Dom Cummings framed what he was doing yesterday and tried to present what he was doing yesterday as an a, 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 an exercise in attempting to get to the truth, to learn the lessons of the failures of the pandemic, to ensure that we we, we never make the same mistakes again. And anybody looking objectively uh, at, at the sort of five, six, seven hours of his of his testimony, you know, you, you cannot avoid the simple fact that it, that's not what it was. Mm. It was quite clearly an attempt by Don Cummings to settle political scores, at sometimes in an, in, in an almost comical way. I mean, the way that he, you know, bent over backwards to blame, obviously, Matt Hancock, and Boris for all the failings, but to exonerate people like Rishi Sunak mm. uh, and others in government who, who you know, Michael Gove's name wasn't wasn't mentioned. Well, a lot, of, a lot of people pointed this out that, you know, go and he's not very good, is he? I mean, because it's now been very clear. I'm afraid uh, I'm hoping I'm not giving any tales away here that that the mail has been the recipient of all of the leaks coming from Dominic Cummings over the course of the last year because they've had everything that he's talked about. And this morning they've gone absolutely bonkers and done 15 pages on it. Well, I mean, I, I thought that the, the interesting thing actually was 
was was the way that that you know he attempted to paint journalists as sort of the the, the, the as people who he you know he just you know had nothing but contempt for pushed to the background uh boris was obsessed with journalists boris was uh, obsessed with this uh, ephemera and he dom rose above it all when anybody who works in westminster or operates in westminster you you know it i know it know that that's that's simply not mm. the case and that that dom is is perfectly happy to have a dabble in the dark arts and i thought it was actually very interesting that that was i thought that was very ex skillfully exposed by greg clark yesterday the, the the committee chair when dom cummings was trying to peddle that line and and greg clark said okay well if you think all this all these documents should be should be public presumably you'll publish your own private communications with journalists on this. Yes. At which point Dom suddenly became a little bit more reticent. Yes. It was fascinating, really, as a, a study in a man like him, who uh, I, I, one thing I did agree with him about, in a way, was that he had no business being at the heart of government. People have always said about him that he, he got Brexit done and he was a great man for the campaign and the Leave campaign and getting the referendum over the, over the line. But he had no business really being in government on a day-to-day -day basis because that's not what he's very good at. And it does now seem as though um, the picture that he paints of the kind of chaos and the, and the madness going on at the beginning part of the pandemic... You know, he could have told all of that story a year ago. You know, he could have sat in the garden um, where he's now confessed to us that he actually told lies, concealed the truth um, and actually, you know, made up a story about why he went to Barnard Castle rather than telling uh, us all of the facts. So why would we trust him now? Well, exactly. I mean, I, I actually thought the most, the, the single most revealing moment, I thought, in the whole seven hours was when Don Cummings said he sat down with the Prime Minister uh, this is his account. He sat down with the prime minister and said to the prime minister, you simply don't trust me to end the chaos in your government. Now, anybody who has, who has followed Don Cummings' career uh, knows that wherever Don Cummings goes, a trail of chaos, carnage and destruction yeah. immediately follows. But I thought what was most interesting was the simple arrogance in that statement, which was Don Cummings literally sat in front of the prime minister, the elected prime minister, prime minister who's won an 80 seat majority, prime minister, whatever your faults, who unlike Don Cummings has had the, the, the courage to put himself in front of the electorate and ask for a mandate, sat in front of him and said, you need to give me control of your government. Mm. And Boris in his typical way just sort of went ho, 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 laughed, laughed it off. But that was at the heart, I thought, of everything that Dominic Cummings said, said to it. If you boiled it down, Don Cummings' anger, rage in certain instances, was directed at, at people, primarily politicians, people who, who had the nerve to say to him, I'm not going to do what you, what you want to do and what you're telling me to do. And that was the narrative that ran through everything. His criticism of Boris Johnson was Boris didn't do what he thought Boris should have been doing. His criticism of Matt Hancock was that Matt Hancock, as health secretary, had the temerity to adopt a different strategy to, uh, to, to testing to the strategy that he, Don Cummings, wanted to, wanted to pursue. That there were senior civil servants who had the temerity 
to to operate a strategy that he don cummings disagreed with now you know don cummings was in government as an as, as an advisor he was entitled to put forward his views an influential ad advisor he, he should have put forward his view but at the point when prime when politicians and the prime minister himself said no don we're not doing it that was the point don cummings had a choice he either knuckled down and got on with the instructions he was given by the prime minister or he left mm. but what he tried to do and it's quite incredible i mean there was, he didn't attempt to hide it what he tried to do was essentially mount a sort of a, a coup in government and he's quite open about mm. it so he got together with a few of his mates a few officials he trusted um maybe a couple of ministers he trusted and as he said tried to work around boris who in his view wasn't fit to be prime minister well i'm sorry it, it, you know it, it's tough to accept on but boris is the prime minister of the united kingdom and you're not yeah exactly and one he wasn't elected two he wasn't asked to help out uh, with the pandemic you know he was in there purely and simply to get brexit done he'd also said i think previously that once brexit was done he was going to leave and then he didn't leave you know, instead he hung around. And like I said, I mean, he could have said everything he said yesterday exactly one year ago. Could have said all of it because nothing's actually changed. You know, if he was that unhappy, he should have resigned then. You know, but I don't understand uh, how somebody like him could be quite so obsessive about all of his enemies and be so useless at actually hiding the fact that they're his enemies um, because, of, as you say, not mentioning Gove, trying to give a big up to Rishi Sunak, saying that Dominic Raab was magnificent. I mean, I don't think Dominic, even Dominic Raab thought he was magnificent. I don't think anybody thinks Dominic Raab's magnificent about anything, you know. But here we have a guy who is just kind of um, unleashing this, this barrage of bilge to a large extent to and he's actually done himself no favors he's done the country no favors he's not actually even really revealed anything because if you think about it dan imagine somebody getting up and saying the secretary of state for health is a liar you know he's a congenital liar a compulsive liar he's lied and should have been fired 20 different times and it hasn't even really pierced the shell of matt hancock matt hancock will get up at half past 10 this morning i'm sure uh, and be absolutely fine he'll make his statement and I don't see him being in any danger whatsoever. Well, you know, I think, you t again, you touched on a, a very good point there. I mean, at the beginning of this, you know, it's very clear. Uh, Dom Cummings thought he could go in and he just used the thing as a platform. And he started off with his little jibe about, you know, Boris was off skiing. And I thought Greg Clark very skillfully said to him, well, hang on a minute, mate. You were the most senior advisor. What were you doing mm. while Boris was off skiing? Right. And it became very clear, and I thought that was the point, actually the first, that first half an hour was when Dom Cummings was, is, is most uncomfortable. Because what Greg Clark very clearly exposed was that far from, you know, being on the ball and across this crisis from day one, Dom Cummings was, as we all reported at the time, was off indulging himself in all his pet obsessions like uh, uh, sort of procurement reform, civil service reform, had no interest in the pandemic was forced to admit he'd not actually been to the SAGE meetings himself, was forced to admit he hadn't actually been to the COBRA meetings himself, came up with some rubbish excuse about, oh, well, I couldn't go because things would things would, things would leak from it. Yeah, he was too, he was too busy, you know, deconstructing yeah, he, the civil service, he which he also busy. didn't he manage too, to do. Exactly. He was too busy with, with his own hobbies. What then was obvious was he then realised this was going to be the big thing and then ran around deciding that he, Don Cummings, had to be the person who saved the government and saved the country. However... As he himself admitted, he didn't understand this stuff. He literally said he was in briefings about COVID and didn't understand it. So, I mean, this is who 
you know, this is who Don Cummings is. And I think this is what was exposed yesterday. You know, Don Cummings loves, you can look at the blogs. He loves all the science stuff. He thinks he likes to think of himself as a science mm. guru, a science, a science expert. But he's not. He's not. He's, do you know what he is? Do you know what he, he, I, I realised he was yesterday? He's basically like that kid who writes to a football club and asks to be the manager because he did really well at the football manager game. Yes. That's kind of what he's yeah. like. Now, well, the one area where Don Cummings, I think, has a point is, and we all saw that yesterday, this guy should not have been in within, within 100 miles of, of Downing Street. No. That's absolutely apparent. And if there is a criticism to be made of, of Boris, I mean, there are a number of criticisms, but I think the, the, the biggest criticism that Boris does have to accept is, why did he let this, this, this guy in there in the first place? Because he, he obviously, as Don Cummings himself admitted, shouldn't have been within a mile of number yeah. 10. But curiously, he's actually boosted Boris's standing in some aspects, uh, particularly those of us who don't think the lockdowns should have really happened in the way that they did. And you and I have talked backwards and forwards about lockdowns, and I know you've been tweeting about this as well, because it seems to me um, that Cummings has revealed two things which we didn't know. One, um, that Sage at the beginning, around about sort of March, were, were not recommending the lockdown. They seem to be actually walking away from that and saying, well, maybe we don't need to do that you know there were people saying look we can't shut down the borders that might be seen as racist you know um so those people who think that boris was fighting off the people that were telling him to have a lockdown have actually gone well boris was trying to save us boris was trying to keep the economy open so actually he's rather perversely boosted boris in their eyes hasn't he exactly i mean i i, I said that today if you remember what the central criticism of boris was that the, the narrative that his critics wanted to construct was that the scientists were begging him to lock down the con economy and he refused because he was like the mayor in Jaws and wanted to, to use the phrase, keep, keep the beaches mm. open. In fact, if you remember at the time, the narrative was he had specifically sent Don Cummings into SAGE meetings to push yes. push that argument. And remember that was criticised, was, wasn't at it? At that time, everybody's saying, what was Don Cummings doing yeah, in there, right? right. What we now know, and we know this from Don Cummings, and we've known this for months, you only need to read the Sage Minutes, is the reality is the scientists were saying to, Do to, saying to Boris, don't lock down, and were presenting data, Cummings confirmed this, that support, supported this. And this is the fundamental thing. I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. What Don Cummings was actually arguing yesterday is that Boris, much earlier in the pandemic, should have stood up in the press conference and announced to the country we are going to lock you down the same way we've locked down China. We may stop just short of literally welding your, you in your houses, but we're going to lock you down nonetheless. And the first question Boris would have been asked is, Prime Minister, do your, does your chief scientific advisor agree with this? Does your chief medical officer agree with this? Does Sage agree with this? And Boris would have had to have turned around and looked at the country and said, no, they all disagree with this. They all tell me I shouldn't be doing this, right. but Don Cummings thinks I should, so I'll do it. Yeah. At that point, Boris would have been rightly would have been dragged out of number ten by men in white coats. Yeah, absolutely right. Because exactly, I mean, you know, Dominic Cummings has proven himself to be disloyal, which is a terrible thing to be. Yeah. Uh, to be kind of um, inexpert, really, in anything, um, pretending to do a job that he wasn't really doing properly, um, and basically, you know, disguising what he was really doing, I don't know why. I mean, you know, you now find yourself thinking, well, why didn't he leave Downing Street earlier? You know, what is he, what is he talking about? And, and, and actually, what was the point of it all? 
Well, I mean, I, I, again, I mean, you've touched on what I actually think is one of the one of the for me is, is the biggest thing. You know, I used to work in politics. Uh, no one near as senior as as Don, as Don Cummings, but I used to work in politics. Politics is a is, is a dirty business. It's a ruthless business. It's a rough business. We, we we all know that. But if you if you take on a job like he took on, you take on a role as the most senior advisor to the prime minister. One thing the prime minister, whoever they are, whatever political persuasion, has a right to expect is a degree of loyalty and a degree of a degree of trust. Now, if Don Cummings had his differences with with Boris, fair enough that, you know, and that happened, then his course of action should be to say to the prime minister, I'm very sorry, I completely disagree with your strategy. I'm now going to leave. But to walk straight out of Downing Street, as he has done, and then stab the prime minister in the back in the way he has done, I think that is more of a reflection on Don Cummings and who Don Cummings is mm. than who Boris Johnson is, actually. No, I agree. And, and frankly, and I said this yesterday, and you know, people can disagree, and we'll, we'll see how this plays out over the next, next few weeks and months. I think the thing the country will take away from this is, you know, they'll remember the way that Boris despite a lot of people telling him to the contrary, the way Boris stood by Don Cummings over the whole Barnard Castle thing, as you rightly pointed out, something that he has now admitted was it was of itself a tissue of lies. Mm. And Boris stood by him. And he then repaid Boris by stabbing him in the back. And I think that is going to be the main public takeaway from this whole affair. Actually. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, Tre Trevor Kavanagh, I think, nails it this morning as well in the Sun, where he says voters are looking ahead to Freedom Day, not back at last year's mistakes. And certainly we did a poll yesterday, albeit a very uh, quick poll on, on the radio. Um, do you care about what Dominic Cummings has to say? And the, the, by far and away, the majority of people said, no, we're not interested. So he's actually done a disservice to those people like you and others who have been critical of Boris Johnson. I mean, I'm getting flack from people now on Twitter going, I thought you were calling for Boris to, to resign a couple of weeks ago. Why are you defending him? Well, I'm not defending him. What I'm saying is, is that Dominic Cummings has kind of protected Boris by giving us all this information in such a disgracefully kind of disloyal way. The point you make about people wanting to look forward, this is the fundamental weakness in, what, in, in, in Cummings' attack yesterday. You remember before he turned up, the, there was the whole attack of, well, Boris wanted to pursue herd immunity. Well, he didn't provide any evidence that he did. But the, but the reality is Boris didn't follow herd immunity. His argument was Boris didn't want to lock down the first time around. Well, Boris did lock down first time around. His other argument was Boris didn't want to lock down in the circuit breaker. Fine. But Boris did introduce a circuit breaker. Mm. His other argument was, well, Boris didn't want to lock down a third time. But Boris did lock down a third time. His other argument was, oh, well, you know, people were mess messing around with, with the vaccine. Well, the vaccine's been a great success. And, you know, this is this is the problem. It was it was such a naked attempt to damage Boris, yeah. damage Hancock, damage his enemies, rather than step back and actually have any sort of objective, objective analysis of what the problems were and what the lessons mm. were, and what we could learn from the future. That, as you said, I just think he completely in, invalidated himself. Yeah. And, and one just one final thing, Dave, we've got to run because we've got to get ready for Matt Hancock's appearance. There were some, some real moments of madness, like that bit where he was talking about injecting people deliberately with COVID and having some kind of fund available in case they died. I was kind of going, sorry? Am I, am well, I imagining no, I mean, this? 
I mean, that was it. I mean, the one that got me was this idea that there were there was significant number of people in government who were seriously arguing. I think I think it was like a couple of days before uh, before the actual lockdown was introduced. That w- that we that the prime minister should stand up and say we should all go and have covid parties yeah and deliberately get the disease there was there was no one in i mean you know you, you we were reporting on nothing else right i was speaking to people in government about nothing else no one in government was seriously advocating saying to the public deliberately go out and yeah. get covid no it's you know it's a, it's a fantasy so and once that something as basic as that falls down you then have to question well, what 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 else yeah was just what wasn't wasn't accurate well exactly right dan good to talk to you thank you very much indeed dan hodges man on sunday's columnist of course i'm sure he'll have something to say about this in the paper on sunday uh the mail have got literally 15 pages of this stuff going on today they've gone completely over the top uh they think that dominic cummings and his great words are of some significance the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio Now, let's have a word with Helen Dale. Helen, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm very well. I do like a good political spat amongst people. Oh, it's 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 a wonderful stooshy, as Mm. the Scots say. Even a bit of a even a a bit of a stramash. It is a stramash. More than a more than a stooshy. It's a stramash. Although, of course, the (laughs) trouble is that without wishing to um, uh, denigrate all of the the particular players in in the game, there's not really any of them who I would like to back on the grounds of uh, decency um, and sort of the trustworthiness, because they're all pretty much a, 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 a sort of a, a nest of vipers, aren't they? Well, we've got this broader problem of, and this is particularly salient with Cummings and the whole Barnard Castle story, which is now every time that comes up, it, it's a, a cue for people to make jokes about testing your eyesight. Yes by getting behind the wheel of a car, which is obviously not a very smart move. But it's not just the Dominic Cummings. He's just a really good flagship example. But remember Professor Pants down the bonking boffin? Well, not only do I remember him, but unfortunately Radio 4 Today programme still seems to think he's worth talking to. They get him on about once a week. Well, this is the problem you've got now is... You've got Neil Ferguson, the bonking boffin, being taken seriously, despite being utterly incapable of following his own rules. You've now got Dominic Cummings being taken seriously, despite also being utterly incapable of following his own rules. And various other journalists, but uh, involved in all of this nonsense earlier that we've talked about previously on the Independent Republic. You've got this problem of people having views, or in the case of Cummings and Ferguson, actually being the author of of at least guidance and probably some of the legislation, which of course has not had adequate parliamentary scrutiny as people like Francis Ha and Adam Wagner have been pointing out and Silky Carlo at Big Brother Watch now as well have been pointing out for some time inadequate parliamentary scrutiny, which is how it finishes up being full of nonsense and not working properly. Mm. Now, the issue for me here, and it's not just me because these things do get cut through uh, in a way that perhaps Dominic Cummings calling Matt Hancock, who I must admit people in my area, to give you an idea of how disliked he became over the care homes fiasco Mm. and then over the contradictory rules with respect to lockdown. People were making Halloween fright masks 
out of Matt Hancock's face. He's a very unlikable man. I mean, he doesn't come I mean, across I well. Was, yeah, he does not I come across well. If he, he comes across as a smug kind of, you know, leave me alone, I know what I'm doing type of guy. He doesn't seem to be interested in anybody else's view. doesn't seem to be interested in anybody else's questions. You know, he's just, he's just I, don't, I don't think, a terribly effective individual. But what I am told is that inside of Downing Street, they literally think the sun shines out of his backside. Well, this is a classic example of the politician who is very likable to his friends, but comes across horribly in public. Mm. And this is not just a problem of Matt Hancock's, because I happen, because I'm a, in the legal profession, I know people, and I went to the same university as him as well, albeit in a different year, I know people who know Keir Starmer really well. Yeah. People who've worked with him and who say he... in person with the camera not on him he's funny he's charming um he's clearly very good at his job and very disciplined you know particularly in this case they're talking about him as a lawyer and head of the cps mm. and they can't and one friend well, he wasn't that good cute. when he was head of the cps like because i can give you a chapter and verse on what he didn't do what he should have oh, done jimmy jimmy savile and groom yeah, gangs right. yes but um but they say in person they they know what they saw when they went to university with him or practiced with him or were opposed to him when they were acting as defence counsel. And they actually can't recognise the person they see on television. Now, it would not surprise, or hear on the on the mm. radio, it would not surprise me if this is the same with Matt Hancock. And it would not, it also wouldn't surprise me if it were not the case with Dominic Cummings as well, who comes across particularly badly on television and it, it's really in a way it's unfortunate that this is something i think that has uh, uh, become a modern difficulty for men a lot of men are quite wooden when they present on television mm. and you you must have had the experience as a radio announcer of trying to get people to show themselves a mm. bit more to to be a bit livelier or otherwise people switch off talk radio and don't want to listen mm. to you because the person being interviewed is boring yeah now women I, I get away with wiggling my fingers a lot more than someone like Peter Hitchens or Neil Oliver does. If they do it, they look silly. Mm. Whereas women are given more of a pass to, to show a bit of a bit of verve, mm. I suppose, or, or, or to in their voices or in, in our voices or when we speak. So you get these blokes who just come across as that. Well, you get. I suspect I get that feeling that someone's put a key in the middle of their back mm. and wound it yeah. up, and now it's unwinding, or someone's pulling their string and the mouth is going, and you're just sitting there going. But they also need to. You're not that, a human. I mean, you you're know, like a robot. Yeah, but we're not talking about people who are not in the public eye here. I mean, I'm, I mean, I would say quite often the people who are less able to communicate in person in a live interview uh, are those who are not used to doing it. But those who are used to doing, I mean, Keir Starmer, being a lawyer, uh, should be used to public speaking. He should be used to standing yes. up in a court of law and making a case. He should also be used to it, having been an MP for many, many years, standing up in uh, in the House of Commons and making a speech. But, you know, even despite all of that, he still can't do it. He isn't any good. Dominic Cummings, the same. I mean, he will have been like anyone from the thick of it. Uh, a guy who has made plenty of public statements, plenty of public speeching, speeches um, when he was uh, in, in, in Downing Street, you know, plenty of uh, group meetings that he would have held. And in fact, when he was in the garden um, talking about Barnard Castle this time last year, he was uh, he was pretty lucid. And, and I don't think he wasn't lucid yesterday. I just think he came across very as a very weird guy. You know, seven and a bit well, hours might, of talking I... about one thing, effectively, and trying to make sure that, that people he wanted to, to kill were being damaged. You know, he just came across to me as a very bitter and twisted individual. 
Well, this is part of the problem of he he wanted to to recruit weirdos and misfits to number ten. Yeah. Because he got this idea in his head that you can actually make technocratic governance work. That it is possible for government to know enough mm. about the individual choices and preferences of citizens in order to engage in technocratic governance, which is why he's constantly singing the praises of countries like Taiwan or Japan. And occasionally, or, although he tends to stay away because they've done it differently, Australia and New Zealand with handling the pandemic. Now, I personally disagree with him on that because I actually do think culture matters and I think cultures are different. And I think it was legitimate and fair for Boris Johnson, if, if what Cummings says is true and leaving Hancock and being a Halloween fright mask to one side, it is legitimate and fair to say we really shouldn't be doing something that was first done in the People's Republic of China mm. in a Western liberal democracy. And those countries that either didn't do it at all, which is basically all of Australia except Victoria, all of New Zealand, uh, Japan, which declares a state of emergency but then can't enforce it, we should be looking to those societies rather than countries that followed the People's Republic of China over a cliff in terms of the treatment of its population with respect to lockdowns. Yeah. Now, I think that we've established that Britain is a high-trust society, that even though there were quite a lot of... I called it shy COVID idiots, you know, people who weren't following the rules. Mm. The majority of the population clearly were. So the behavioural scientists who allegedly said that, no, our population in a Western liberal democracy will not engage in this behaviour, they were clearly wrong. And other scholars, people like Stuart Ritchie, for example, the chap who wrote science fictions, have pointed out there are real problems with behavioural psychology and behavioural economics because the papers don't replicate. We've got this problem of they do a study. The, the famous one that everybody jokes about is, remember when people at Tory conference were all standing with their legs apart? Mm. Yes, well, when posing. they were doing the power posing thing. Yeah, that was, and it's it, nonsense. It that doesn't was in replicate. the bad old days of Theresa May and George Osborne, wasn't it? Yes, but also, I mean, and poor Sajid Javid, he's really short. He comes up to about my chin. He was trying to do it. And it just made him look ridiculous. Yeah. You know, a, a jockey does a power pose. It's not going to work no. with someone who's that little. But it's just, it's so, you people got bought into these silly psychological ideas that turn out not to be true. But by the same token, you can ignore all the arguments of the behavioural psychologists if they were made. And of course, people are now disputing that. And just say, perhaps it's unwise in a Western liberal democracy to copy what China did. Because well, indeed. China is an authoritarian what's, what's, regime. Yeah, but what's interesting about what we learned, one of the things we did learn yesterday was that actually SAGE were not recommending lockdown back in February, even though Boris Johnson eventually ended up making it a lockdown in March. And, and as mm. far as people doing mostly what they were asked to do, there wasn't much else you could do because everything was shut. I mean, you could only go... I mean, my, my sole kind of adventure was a, a Saturday morning trip to Waitrose. That was all I did. Yes. And we've also now seen with the, with the lockdowns that you can make them mostly work in Britain. They've clearly been able to, in Victoria and Australia, where they have been they're going into their fourth lockdown now, it is possible to get people to do them in a Western liberal democracy and it's possible to make them work. But just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Now, it's very clear that Australia and New Zealand largely dealt with their problem 
through quarantine. Now, quarantine is ancient. It goes back to classical antiquity. It goes back to the Justinian, Justinianic plague in the 5th mm. century, uh, sorry, 6th century AD. So it is, it is possible uh, to, to make quarantine work. But once again, people are where even Cummings, who's into this forecasting thing, which I don't think it is possible to do, and they're all going to come a dreadful cropper, and they have a lot of them already. Uh, you've already got this thing that you can you can stop things at the border, but at the same time, the retrospectoscope going back to February and March last year, is the, the World Health Organization was recommending against quarantine along the Australian model yeah. and was busily having a go at Donald Trump for shutting the border to what we would call now red list countries. Mm. Yet Australia and New Zealand, because both those countries have largely abrogated the international law in this area, and good luck to them. I mean, a lot of international law is, it's not even really Yeah, law. but also it's easier for it's them It's easier for them to do it, Helen, isn't it? Because they are at the end of everybody's destination list as opposed to in the middle of it. And New we, Zealand and we were is told... Australia, not so much because of the close association historically with China over many decades. Yeah, but you and don't get... Well, but what I'm saying is, yeah, but what I'm saying is, is you don't go to australia really on route to anywhere else you go to australia if you're going to australia whereas people yes supposedly, that is true people supposedly come through london all the time because they're going somewhere else and that was why we were told supposedly that we couldn't shut the borders we now know that partly there was a problem with people worrying that it might be seen as racist if we did that which is ludicrous but also which secondly australia is always accused of racism over its immigration policy and yet it's the most ethnically diverse country on the planet. I mean, this is nonsense. And people who say things like that need to be given a swift boot up the bottom because it is just nonsense. It's the it's the standard sort of lefty rhetoric that you get that anybody that that anybody who wants to control the borders in some way is a racist. It has to stop. This just yeah. has to Well, I mean, suddenly stop. there was no uh, argument when we eventually closed the border to India, except the problem is we haven't actually closed the border to India because there are still people coming in and out of India. There are still flights coming here from India. And so so the government's kind of consistent failure has been uh, uh, a totally leaky border because they've said that certain uh, travel is restricted, but it's only been restricted for some people. You know, like I've been, I've been hearing for the best part of the last two months now, oh, well, lots of people go back and forth to India because they have family there uh, and they have business there. Well, I have family in America, but I'm not going there because I'm not supposed to. So therefore, I haven't done it. You know, um, it seems well, to be one rule. It seems to be one rule. going on with all of this, yes. Well, it does, but, doesn't it? But that you've got this overall problem where lots of stuff was done by seat of the pants. Lots of it was wrong. Probably the most egregious thing that happened is the thing that we all already know about and wasn't a revelation from Cummings, which is the discharging of people from hospital into care homes without them being tested for COVID. I mean, that's has clearly and obviously yes. led to deaths. We can all see that. But... We've all known that there, there's no revelation in what Cummings has said to, uh, to to the committee in the Commons for the simple reason that we've all known that this mm. was this was the great disaster right. of Britain's response. Well, those of us who have been COVID. critical, Helen, of, of yeah. government policy, which which includes me and certainly Julie Hartley Brewer and many others at Talk Radio, you know, most of what Cummings said yesterday was what we had been saying for a very long time anyway. You know, that it was very clear that they were making mistakes in care homes. It was very obvious that people were dying in hospitals. It was very clear that they should have shut down the borders. All of those things we said. We said them all. We said them a year ago. What I don't understand is why Cummings didn't say them a year ago, because nothing's changed apart from his attitude to the people inside Downing Street. Well, 
how long is a piece of string? God knows what's going on in number 10 Downing Street at, at the moment. And you hear all these sort of ridiculous stuff about it and it periodically leaks so it's about the dog or it's about wallpaper or that kind of thing yes. as if any of this is relevant and what it is what produces this ridiculous relationship with the press and with all the fervid nonsense uh, in the Westminster village about Dominic Cummings mm. now is people want to get cut through with one of these things and it almost never happens it, you almost never Well, the get Daily cut Mail through. today, I was saying, has got 13 to 15 pages on this. I mean, talk about overkill. But that's been the paper that Dominic Cummings has been leaking to all along. But uh, people want cut through with one of these Westminster Village stories. And it does occasionally happen. Poor Ed Miliband and the sandwich. Yeah. The entire country finished up knowing about that. And it's trivial. It's the kind of thing that gets cut through in the Westminster Village, but you don't expect it to travel. But well, it actually, no, it, but it does, funnily enough, because it's actually, that's the kind of stuff that the Westminster Village doesn't get, funnily enough. They don't understand why people remember Ed Miliband for eating a bacon sandwich. They think he should be remembered <laughs> for something else. That's all he's remembered for, honestly. It's a bacon and a weird face. His yeah. face is sort of lopsided. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, can't do that. I can't do that thing with it's, my face. It's unfortunate for him because I'm sure that there were other pictures where he looked completely normal. But, you know, I've, oh, worked, gosh, in, yes. I've worked in newspaper offices and the pictures come in and you look at them and you go, that's the picture. That's the one. Let's put yes. it in the paper right now. And I mean, right unfortunately, now. unfortunately, it's the same as John Prescott. John Prescott remembered really largely for uh, his wife wanting to get a car ride 250 yards down the Blackpool seafront because she didn't want her hair to get messed up at Labour Party conference and for punching um, the guy that threw an egg at him. Brilliant. You know, never mind any of the policies he ever stood for. Or, no, his, or, or his any job. of the other things he might have no. achieved in his life. He's remembered for being fist happy. Yeah, And, exactly. and I have to say that the, a couple of, I remember when that happened and I had friends of mine going, you know, I think he might have boxed a bit. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's true. Someone. No, but I mean, actually, he, he, you know, he was seen as a bit of a grumpy, slightly arrogant former kind of trade unionist. After that, people loved him. People were like, this is great. He's actually done something that most He's politicians just a bloke. wouldn't do. Because if somebody threw an egg at me, I'd punch him, you know. Well, this is the other thing. And we're getting back to the problem of uh, of low trust in political leadership and the, the a related problem. And I've had a smaller version of this happen to me myself, where the staffer, to use the Australian expression, yeah. staffers, uh, senior advisors and chiefs of staff, as they're called in Australia, are... Um, become a bigger story and they're not elected. Now, this happened to me to a degree because I was a senior advisor to an Australian senator. And when he hired me, it became a news story because he'd hired a person who'd won the Miles Franklin Award. And yes, there were lots of smart remarks along mm. the lines of, oh, Senator Lionhelm, he wants really fancy speeches because it's happened once before. Paul Keating hired an award-winning writer mm. called uh, called Don Watson, um, to be his speechwriter, and you had this situation and it was very awkward for both Don Watson and then it was awkward for me in 2014 because the SPAD, as you say over here, or mm. the staffer became the story yeah. instead of the politician. And that is really, really annoying. And you don't want it to, it, you know, it, you don't want it to happen. No, yes, I, yeah, nah, to use the Australianism. Yes, I'm a good writer. Yes, I'll be writing speeches for my politician, but they are still his ideas. He is the politician. He was elected. And that's the other problem we've got with technocracy here and is my main criticism of someone like Dominic Cummings, 
realistically, there's no government big enough for this man. He's utterly convinced mm. that you can find smart technocrats that are a bit like him, a bit weird, and they can run everything properly and do everything properly and forecast what people in a liberal democracy will be able to do in advance. Mm. Now, I'm reasonably confident that that is not possible. It may be possible in China with their social credit system, but once again, we're getting back to this situation of to what degree do you want to copy a totalitarian regime mm. that is reasonably suspected by people who know a lot about what happens in the region of perpetrating a genocide against a religious minority. Yeah. Well, you basically don't want to be anywhere you near that. You just don't want you, to no, go anywhere near that. No, of course I'm you don't. sorry. You absolutely don't. No. Helen, listen, we've got to run because we're already out of time. But thank you for that. Very interesting uh, summation of what happened yesterday and why we are where we are. Uh, absolutely no chance, in my view, of Matt Hancock having a glove laid upon him uh, by, uh, by uh, Dominic Cummings, which seems extraordinary given what he actually said. If you think about what he said and the fact that it hasn't made any difference whatsoever, I say that is rather surprising, don't you? 45 dollars up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, let's talk to Trevor Kavanagh, uh, who's got a column in The Sun this morning. Spot on, I would say. Voters are looking ahead to Freedom Day, says the headline, not back at last year's mistakes. Trevor, very good morning to you. Hi, Trevor. Hello. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks indeed for joining us. Um, Seems to me that uh, that I've been saying this since about yesterday afternoon, that uh, considering what he actually said, it's quite remarkable, really, that that, uh, Dominic Cummings' words 
haven't really done more damage, isn't it? Yes, I think probably the sheer volume of them and the length of time that he had to uh, devote to them has sort of diluted their mm. impact. Um, as I was watching it, as I did all the way through, the bombshells were coming thick and fast for the first couple of hours. Yeah. Couldn't keep up. It was so fast. Um, and we were all saying, wow. But as after a while, the, you got used to it. The impact began to diminish. And uh, finally, you began to wonder what was going on. Mm. Whose truth was this? And truth is a very subjective thing. And while I wouldn't in any way accuse Dom of not telling the truth, I've known him for a very long time and uh, respect and in, and in many ways admire exactly what he was intended to do when he went into Downing Street. I think that you began to wonder just how wrong everybody else in the world seems to have been except Dom Cummings. <laughs> well, quite. And I wonder as well why um, he didn't say all the things that he said yesterday a year ago. Because if he was that annoyed and upset with the way that things were going in Downing Street when he clearly had a hand in how they could have gone then why would he not just have resigned back in May of last year when he sat in that garden and gave his rather now uh, un untrue version of events about Barnard Castle? Uh, why didn't he just spill his guts then and just go, this is all being handled wrongly, it's all, it's all being pushed in the wrong direction, I've got it right, they've all got it wrong, and now I'm leaving? Well, I think that point was made in the rather tepid questioning from the two chairmen and the panel on the um, select committees who gave him the space and time to elaborate on just about everything under the sun. And um, the question really wasn't answered by Dom. He admitted that um, he'd made mistakes too, that he had failed to do uh, many things, but mostly they were failures of omission. The fact that he hadn't stood up sooner and shouted louder and uh, blown the whistle and pressed the gigantic red button and uh, brought the whole, uh, uh, thrown a huge spanner in the works. That's not really an admission of failure. That's an admission of other people's failures. Well, that's right. I thought it was slightly kind of faux, his humility, to be honest. I didn't really buy into that. But you also point out that um, many people are not that interested in going backwards and looking backwards because we are now in a place where we're looking forwards to June the 21st. We heard Matt Hancock say today we won't really know for sure until maybe the 14th, possibly the week before, whether everything that they say they want to do and all the restrictions that they say they want to lift do get lifted. But, you know, I think most people, Trevor, would say, well, you know, they might have made some mistakes, but it was a pretty weird time. It was a pretty difficult thing to deal with. And nobody really knew precisely what the right thing to do was. Yes, on your point in the middle of that about the June the 21st, I think that Boris now needs to actually deliver the promise he made, which mm. is that we get our freedoms back completely. No masks, no social distancing. Yeah and the ability to lead a normal life in every possible way, especially as schools and in, in very many areas where social care is required. I mean, the whole country has been living with bated breath literally for the last 18 months, and we deserve a break. Uh, on the other matter, I think that the public isn't stupid. They know that there were mistakes. Uh, I think they, they've been admitted, and mm. one of the th biggest mistakes was the issue of dumping COVID patients from the NHS wards into care homes where thousands then subsequently died probably as a result. Mm. But even there, we're not alone in the world on that. I mean, Sweden, <clears throat> which is held up as an exemplar of um, good public health and good order, did exactly the same thing. And, uh, and, so, uh, and also the issue of herd immunity, that was an area which was explored as an experiment by 
experiment by Sweden, by America and other countries. And you only have to look at the way that the European Union as a whole has made a complete hash of vaccinations to realise that while we got some things wrong, we got the big things right. Yeah. And certainly Scotland was worse than, than England in terms of sending people back to care homes and people uh, perishing. But also, I think it's a bit unfair, and I'm no fan of Matt Hancock's, but it's a bit unfair to lay all of that at his door anyway, because NHS England had an awful lot uh, to say about that. Many of the NHS trusts wanted people out of the hospitals in order to create space for, 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 for patients they thought were coming in. So it wasn't simply an order by Matt Hancock to chuck them all out of the, uh, the hospital beds. It was, it was a considered view of all the professionals at the time. Well, I think that all of the authorities, the quangos like PHE, the NHS itself, uh, the Cabinet Office um, Contingencies Secretariat, which is supposed to have prepared the plan for this, but the plan simply did not exist. All of them must carry a share of the blame for what happened, because in the end, you've got a government which had only come into office literally months before, in many cases. I mean, the, uh, Boris Johnson became prime minister uh, in his own right, only in the uh, uh, December previously. And frankly, it, any government coming into a, a crisis like this, which was never uh, handled before by any government anywhere, would have made mistakes. And... That's how people, I think, will look at it fairly, that they were doing their best. They got some things wrong. A lot of people who were in their uh, latter years very sadly died, but who probably, according to the Office of National Statistics, would have died by now anyway from mm. the conditions that they were suffering from. They were indeed, the over 80s, were indeed the dry tinder, as they rather brutally described this section of the population, which is the, 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 the first wave of casualties in anything from a flu epidemic to a respiratory disease. Yeah. And there's no doubt about that, because I was listening to um, a doctor the other day talking about the current cases in <coughs> hospitals, particularly in the parts of uh, the country where there's an Indian variant, that they're all, by and large, over a certain age, that most of them uh, have got sort of comorbidities, if you like. The people who are being taken into hospitals haven't had vaccines either. Um, and so those of us who are uh, vaccinated, um, those of us who do not have underlying health problems, uh, are more than likely to be OK. Absolutely. And I think that um, the problems in India are totally different to the problems here in Britain. But there is an overlap slightly, which is that people from certain communities are much more resistant to the idea of taking a vaccination anyway. They live much more closely together. They frequently are more prone to things like diabetes and obesity. All of these are contributory factors to the fact that we have a sudden upsurge, which isn't affecting more than 90% of the population. Mm. Much was made uh, today as well in, 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 uh, in the papers of the fact that he didn't mention Michael Gove at all yesterday. Uh, so while he was throwing a few people under the bus and praising a few other people, uh, people are wondering where Gove is in all of this. Well, yes, you're right. And uh, if you read the Daily Telegraph, for instance, a couple of days ago, they splashed on claims that there was a sort of a conspiracy going on between Michael Gove, who is the Cabinet Office Secretary of State, and uh, Dominic Cummings, who have been allies and pals for a very long time. They worked together, as you will know, in the Education yeah. Department when they first declared war on the so-called blob, the Whitehall Civil Service. And there is um, uh, the, 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 the Telegraph described Michael Gove as the shapeshifter, mm. which is an interesting uh, <laughs> description of someone who tends to 
fill whatever um, void is available. Um, and there's no doubt that he, he is a very ambitious man. He may not actually believe that he can be prime minister after having uh, stabbed the present one in the back at the one stage. But they do have a close relationship, which I think makes people wonder what exactly is being plotted behind the mm. scenes. Yes, quite. And knowing Dominic Cummings finally, Trevor, as you do, will he be sitting around today wishing that he'd been able to do more damage? Will he be disappointed with the effects? Will he be annoyed that Matt Hancock has just got up in Parliament and said, it's all lies, it's all rubbish? Of course I'm not a liar. I think he will be very, very pleased with his performance, which, after all, was quite a consummate one. Uh, he didn't miss a trick. He got all the facts at his fingertips and... Uh, he got his uh, all in first, and Matt Hancock is now struggling to deny the undeniable, which is that he lied. I mean, proving that you didn't lie is much harder than saying that someone being accused of lying. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, and this isn't the end of Dominic Cummings. He will appear more more than once. He'll be called back to the committee to actually deliver the documentary evidence that he claims he has that um, Matt Hancock did lie. And he will be called, of course, at the full actual public inquiry, which will take place in the uh, new year. Mm. But in the meantime, everybody who he's named, including the former cabinet secretary, Mark Sedwell, including indeed Matt Hancock himself and others, will be called before these committees to give their versions of events and try to mop up the wreckage that <laughs> Dominic Cummings has left behind. Yes. He has rather left a sort of burning building, hasn't he, behind him? But Trevor, thank you very much indeed. Trevor Kavanagh, a political columnist at The Sun, a piece in the paper today uh, in which he basically says that, yes, of course, it was important what Dominic Cummings had to say, but voters are not terribly interested because they're looking ahead to June the 21st. And as he says, that's the day when we need to have everything lifted, masks off, no social distancing, you know, back to normal. That's what we want, isn't it? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let us, without further ado, talk to Ben Habib. And Ben, a very good afternoon to you. Um, I'd, I'd like to start really by just asking you what you made of the whole Cummings uh, a pantomime yesterday, because obviously it's the big story in all the papers this morning. Um, I found it all a bit sort of uh, dreary, funnily enough. Well, I, I, I think it's a little too much, too late. Yeah. You know, if Dominic had all these concerns, these deep concerns about thousands of people about to die as a result of government failed policy mm. he should have been beating the drum very very loudly last year yes quite and i you know, to wait until he's been fired wait a few more months after that and then come out with all these allegations frankly is kind of pointless because he was in a position when he could have done something about it and now he's in a position where he just looks like it's sour grapes and um but you know the other thing mike is that how is it that a man who has made these very serious allegations against the government actually was at the heart of government for right. so long was so close to the prime minister how did that happen and also how is it possible for him to sit there and say that all of this stuff was so wrong when a year ago he could have said exactly that um and nothing's really changed in terms of the facts of the matter aside from his attitude to his boss former boss yeah, and a year ago, he might have been able to do something about the impending damage he thought the policies were going to create. Right. And now it's all, you know, it's spilt milk, isn't it? And um, so I think he's got a lot of questions to answer. But, you know, the interview for me really raises a much broader question about the integrity and competency of government generally. Yeah. You know, you've got 
people at the heart of government who are now coming out accusing the prime minister effectively of killing people yeah. and knowingly killing people. And that's, you know, that's one hell of an accusation for someone from the inner circle to be making. Well, it really is. And, and the same with uh, Matt Hancock. This is what I was saying earlier, that it's extraordinary that the, the, the allegations, which are very serious, are not really being taken seriously, which tells you a lot about yeah. sort of where we are. You know, to call the Secretary of State for Health a congenital and a compulsive liar. I mean, <laughs> it's extraordinary stuff, isn't it? It is extraordinary stuff. It is extraordinary. It'll probably blow over in a couple of weeks. Though, I right? suspect it will. I mean, he didn't have much to say about Priti Patel, as far as I could tell. She, once again, is uh, in, in introducing yet another kind of a step in the process of trying to make illegal migrants leave the country. I'm not sure this one's going to work any better than all the other ones she keeps introducing. Well, look, you know, the biggest source of illegal immigration is people overstaying their visas. Mm. It is as dramatic as those scenes are of people coming across from France in dinghies. Actually, it's people simply not leaving the country when they're meant to leave. Right. And what we need is a system that properly tracks people in the United Kingdom once they're here and gives us the authority and powers to eject them when they've overstayed their welcome. Sadly, we've signed into the European Convention of Human Rights. Mm as part of this new, we, we were always uh, members of it, but we've signed it into law now, international treaty by way of this trade and cooperation agreement. And that does make life slightly more complex for the United Kingdom. You know, we can't just get, we can't pass laws just to get rid of illegal immigrants the way we might wish to, mm. um, you know, because we're part of the ECHR. And so that means that we'll never be able to really get rid of people because the two issues seem to me, one uh, is tracking them, obviously, because you need to know who's here illegally and how much longer yeah. they, they've been here illegally. But also you need to be able to send them somewhere. And that seems to me to be an even bigger problem because you can't necessarily, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming some of these people will have come here on visas to go and be educated or visas to work. Um, and then they've decided to hang around. But I mean, you can't always just simply tell them to go back to where they've come from, can you? Well, you can't. Under the ECHR, there are very rigorous processes through which we would have to go and quite a high, uh, quite a high bar to send them back home. Yeah. What we can't, for example, is what the Australians have, which is a zero tolerance approach to illegal immigration. Right. You know, and anyone who tries to get into Australia illegally knows that they will not be allowed to stay no matter how valid their claim may subsequently transpire to be. And that's what we need to have. People need to know. If they want to stay in the United Kingdom, they've got to apply through the legal processes. So you need, as you said, Mike, you need the ability to track these people and then you need the ability to eject them once you've once you found them. And sadly, the ECHR blocks us on that latter point. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, this is all about a digital kind of passport almost, uh, as far as uh, I understand it, that they want to issue to people, which will block them from having access to the NHS uh, and or benefits and or work. But I'm wondering how workable that will be. For example, if, you know, as I said earlier, if somebody gets hit by a car and they're lying on the street down there in uh, uh, in London Bridge, you know, you can't very well say, I'm sorry, we can't take you to the hospital, can you? No, and, and they, they get treated, you know. We, we treat and then we ask for, for evidence of right of treatment post the treatment. You know, there's, as you rightly say, people aren't going to be turned away if they're, if they're bleeding to death. But mm. there's a huge underclass and black economy in the United Kingdom for illegal immigrants. Mm. You know, there are about 10,000, we, we did this on Unlocked a, a few months ago, there are about 10,000 unaccounted for workers in Leicester alone, mm. working on sub-minimum wage, yeah. basically in close to slave conditions. 
you know, so the idea that you can track these people electronically once they're here is is for the birds, actually. Yeah. You know, we've we need a much more rigorous process. Yes. And I mean, this is the argument, isn't it, about um, uh, the voter ID business as well, where people go, well, you know, you'll be excluding people from uh, being able to vote because they don't have any ID because they're effectively working this black economy. Well, surely if they're illegal immigrants, they shouldn't be voting anyway, should they? Uh, absolutely. I'm completely in favour of producing evidence uh, at too. polling stations. Completely in favour. There's so much abuse that goes on. I'm not going to name names, but, you know, it's a critical component of getting our electoral reform right. Right. And it's, and it's also typical of Labour to make out that it's some kind of Tory plot to stop anybody voting from Labour. I mean, Labour Party themselves are probably the best reason why nobody's voting Labour, because nobody knows what they stand for. Well, they've ceased to be in opposition. They certainly cease to represent the working class. Yeah. Absolutely right. So, I mean, what hopes do you have for this system then? Because they say that it's going to be introduced quite soon. Um, they're going to share information across government departments. You know, the border force we know is under a huge strain. And, and while you say that, you know, the uh, and I take your point that the, 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 the people coming across on dinghies is a very small part of the immigration problem. It's still a very visible one. And people still are incredibly frustrated to see it continually going on without anybody seemingly uh, even yeah. trying to stop it. Well, it's a very good illustration, Mike, of the problems, because actually when people come across in a dinghy, there's no problem identifying that they're here. Mm. There's no problem getting hold of them. But yet we don't send them back. And, you know, evidence is what we've been discussing early in this program, that we've got a fundamental issue with the legal setup and we've got to get rid of the ECHR. We've you know, we've got to we've got to have the right as an independent country to adopt an Australia-type approach, which is zero tolerance to illegal immigration. Now, that's going to offend a lot of people, mm. but I'm not talking about legitimate immigration. I'm talking about illegal immigration. And, you know, the, the Labour Party and others wish to conflate those two categories of people. They are not conflatable. Illegal immigrants, there should be zero tolerance. Genuine asylum seekers, genuine immigrants, well, they go through our processes, and our processes for legitimate applications are very generous and sympathetic. Mm. Well, they are. But when you see the likes of uh, what happened in Glasgow a couple of weeks ago, you know, where, uh, where basically a sort of campaign organisation got together, because I don't believe for a second that it was just people who happened to be in the same street when the, uh, uh, when the Border Force guys showed up, to kind of prevent two illegal immigrants from being taken away. You know, you do wonder, particularly when you get the Scottish government also backing um, the people who were lying under the under the van saying you can't take these people away. They're part of our community. And when you get the justice minister uh, of, of the SNP in the Scottish Parliament saying, you know, we do not uh, encourage this hostile environment effectively. We do not believe in UK home office policy. That's a problem, isn't it? Well, they're, I mean, they're effectively buying votes. We're straight back to, you know, why, why do they want that? They mm. want to cut me favour with these people. Um, you know, one of the reasons Tony Blair, and it was Tony Blair's fault, really, that, you know, threw open the floodgates to immigration. One of the reasons he did it was to make sure he was put back in office repeatedly at general elections. Mm. He knew it was a surefire way to bolster his support base. Yes. And uh, I think the SNP are guilty of the same thing. Yes. And it takes a courageous government, but it takes it's a necessary step to take. It takes a courageous government to step on it. Yeah. It does, but doesn't it kind of make a bit of a mockery as well of, of the government that we currently have, which has got now an 81-seat uh, majority, um, thanks to winning Hartlepool, that actually it's <laughs> almost powerless to do anything in, about immigration? 
Yeah, well, we've got this new point system, you know, just looking at legal immigration now for a second. We've got this new point system, and it'll be very interesting to, to monitor how numbers appear over the next 12 to 24 months, post-Brexit, mm. post this new immigration system, whether it really cuts back from the 300,000 net immigration figure that we have every year. Remember, that's a size, that's a city the size of Manchester every three years. Right. So we've got to cut that back. And I hope that the immigration, the point-based system that Pretty Patel introduced will, will cut that back. And that, um, you know, together with these other steps she's taking, we can perhaps track some of these Ill illegal immigrants better. But I think we'll never get a proper grip of illegal immigration in the United Kingdom until we've got the courage to ditch the ECHR mm. and take complete control of our laws. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Ben. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Ben Habib, Chairman of Unlock, former Brexit Party MEP, on the news that Priti Patel wants to introduce this system, which is similar in some ways to what they have in Australia. But basically it would mean uh, you would be giving digital visas to people um, and allowing government departments to restrict their access to benefits, to services and to work, uh, including services from the NHS, uh, if the visa does indeed expire. But you're still then faced with the problem of what you do then. Do you actually then have the capability or the capacity um, to deport any of these people? Um, how about this from um, uh, Shumba, who says uh, the policy should be once illegal migrants come, they should not be able to access any of our benefits or NHS services. And if they knew this, then they might not come as it does not make the UK as attractive. I think that's possibly true. The tea lady says what we need is fingerprint ID scanners in hospitals and benefit offices. Stop the massive fraud that we all know is going on. Well, I mean, it's clearly a problem. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.